there are two social phenomenon that I have been consistently interested in for essentially opposite reasons. And these are low stakes phenomena, but nonetheless, um, one is because as a society, we have embraced it and we go along with it without a lot of outside pressure. And one is because even though it would make total sense to go along with this societal expectation, as a group, we completely ignore it. So the first one, like I said, these are low stakes. The first one resolve, revolves around the luggage carousel at an airport. I've always been fascinated that the baggage claim in an airport involves essentially negligent fraud. Okay? It would be very easy to come in and take a bag that is not yours and leave. I mean, it's maybe low stakes, but it's, you might get something. You never know. But no, we walk out of, the airport, out of our airplane and we see where we're supposed to go to baggage claim and we all line up in a fairly orderly fashion and all of the bags come down. You go and you take your bag and you leave the airport. You don't have to check an ID or get a ticket. There's just this trust that you're going to take the bag that is yours and you're not going to take someone else's. Now, I'm not saying that it never happens. In fact, after I brought this up at the 845 service, I did hear of a couple extreme examples, but I say that those are the things that prove as a society, this is a line that we do not cross. It's very similar to um, putting in a mobile order at a restaurant and you go and you pick up your food on, um, on a counter and it has your name on it and you grab it. Never have I once ordered food, gone to pick it up and it wasn't there because someone else had taken it. The food just sits there and you go and you pick up the food that is yours. If it didn't work, restaurants wouldn't do it because their profit margins would suffer. This works. For some reason, we have decided that luggage carousels and mobile pickups for restaurants are sacred and we will not violate that trust. <laughs> it's kind of crazy if you think about it. Okay, the second phenomenon that offers me significantly less hope for our society is the rules of traveling on a highway. Right? Specifically, which lane that we use depending on how fast we're going. This should make sense to people, right? The right lane is for going under the speed limit. The middle lane is for going, we're gonna say speed limit to 10 over. The left lane is for people that have nothing to lose, and that is okay. <laughs> That's okay, that's how, we, that's how we've designed it. That's why there are multiple lanes, right? The left lane is not for semi-trucks that wanna go two miles faster than the other semi-truck that's in front of you. Um, the right lane is not for people that wanna pass. I mean, we should all be agreeing that this makes sense and then we'd all get to the place that we wanna go at the speed in which we want to go. But for some reason, we will not steal others' food, but we will just be absolutely nuts on I-75, or on uh, 75. I know because I travel it every single day, there are no rules. You go the speed you go, and I don't even think anyone's getting pulled over. It's, it's a mayhem. This is not an agreed upon practice. And these are two of the many, many social contracts that we encounter in our day-to-day -day lives. They're things that bind us to one another, that we are in agreement 
loose agreement sometimes to follow, and they allow us to function as a society. We can function as individuals with different perspectives, different priorities, different viewpoints, um, but we can come together and make sure that we are moving in the right direction. In this letter to Rome that Paul wrote, Paul is excavating one of the most important social contracts in the history of God and God's people, the contract between God and Abraham, and how it extends far beyond the direct line of Abraham and Sarah. Romans is considered Paul's masterpiece by most people. And it's foundational to our understanding of what it means to be a Christian because it talks about what it means to be justified by faith rather than works, by faith alone. In fact, Martin Luther, of the thesis, Martin Luther thought it was so important to, that he said that Christians should and if you're looking for a Lenten discipline, maybe this one is yours. They should not only memorize it word for word, but occupy ourselves with it daily as though it were the daily bread of our soul. And then it was actually Martin Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans that John Wesley was listening to when his heart was strangely warmed which of course was the advent of what we now know as Methodism. Romans is Paul's masterclass. And so preaching from Romans is like interpreting something that is entirely complete and impossibly complex. As you heard, it is tightly packed with meaning and context. Paul wrote this letter around 57 CE, and so this was a burgeoning church, a heterogeneous church. There hadn't been decisions made about what everyone would do and what everyone would believe and how everyone would practice following Christ. There would have been in the church to Rome, Jewish and Gentile Christians, and there would have been differences of opinions on practice and beliefs. Do Jewish Christians continue to follow the law? Do Gentile Christians take up the law or ignore the law. And so it should come to as no surprise that Paul, a Hellenistic Jew, a Pharisee, would be talking about in Romans Abraham, the father of our faith, who along with his wife Sarah begat generations of descendants of God's people who would outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. Our text this morning picks up in examining the covenant between Abraham and God. Paul explains that this covenant is a covenant of grace to humankind. After the chaos that comes before it in Genesis chapter 3 through chapter 11, as a quick reminder, that is not humanity's best time, chapters 3 through 11. We have the fall of Adam and Eve. We have the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. We have the wickedness of Noah's generation and then the flood. Then we have the hubris of Babel. And yet through all of this, God still calls Abraham out, promising to make of him a great nation. And Abraham believes 
and follows God's call, walking toward a promised future that essentially makes very little sense. God promises Abraham and Sarah that they would become parents, but they were at a very advanced age. God promises them that they would not only become parents, but become uh, become the ancestors to a host of descendants who would live as the people of God in God's land with God's protection and God's care. And in this, we see a kind of a new beginning for God. We've moved through the three through 11, and then we've gotten to Abraham, who's listening to God, calling sinful humanity back to trust in God, in a God that is good. After a pattern of disappointment, a pattern of disgrace, not with the law, but with grace would the covenant be made. A grace that cannot be ruptured by the inevitability of human sin. And the basis of this new relationship is not how well Abraham will follow the rules, but it is that Abraham has trust in God. Abraham's faith is in what he has not seen, but knows God will provide. And now there are a couple of important anomalies in this story that Paul is referencing in Genesis 15 in that story of Abraham and God. You're welcome to look at it now or look at it later. It's kind of crazy, as many of our Old Testament stories are. Um, and so Paul is referencing this covenant that happens in Genesis 15. Um, and it has some interesting parts in it that we might not notice as odd because we simply weren't alive 4,000 years ago to understand what would have been normal and what would have been an outlier. Okay, the first is the idea that God would do something for humanity. If you look at the surrounding cultures of the time, mainly what would happen was that people would sacrifice things to God, look to serve God, bring things to a God or gods uh, because they were worried about the wrath of that God or they were trying to curry the favor of that God. They were trying to protect themselves essentially from the whims of who God is and maybe if they did the right things, then that God would smile upon them and they would be able to continue to exist. But the story that Paul is recounting in Romans, specifically the story of God's promise to Abraham, is not a story of Abraham doing something, but of God being before Abraham. God making a promise to do something for one person, and through him, a host of people. And that should pique our ears as an informed reader, because then we know that this God is not the same kind of God. Something different is going on. This God cares about trust. This God cares about relationship. This God can be relied on rather than feared or appeased. The other thing that is interesting in the covenant story that comes in, that it comes in the ritual uh, that we probably skip over when we read Genesis 15. And that is because um, we don't do a lot of animal sacrifice here in 2024 in the mainline Protestant church. That's not one of our practices. 
So it all just kind of seems like, and then they did some stuff with animals and then some things happened as they are wont to do in the Old Testament. But if you understand the context, something really interesting comes up. So as a quick primer to a covenant, covenant isn't something that, um, that is unique to the Bible. A covenant was a, was a normal practice outside of religion in the ancient Near East. It was the way in which order was upheld before we, you can rely on, you know, the court's justice system, that sort of thing. So remember my, my awe at suitcases uh, being, being retrieved or food not being stolen. That could be because as a community, we are moving on to perfection. And, you know, we're just, we're getting better and better each day. It could be because there are just cameras everywhere and the crime isn't really worth the punishment that you'd have to do, uh, being that probably most suitcases have sort of damp beach clothes in them. It's just not worth it. Okay, it's why we don't dine and dash. It's also why we don't go into someone's home and we sit down and this is really lovely. This is mine, this is mine now. We have a social contract of how that stuff happens. But the nomads of the ancient Near East didn't have the system of justice that we have now. Um, they didn't have uh, the same sort of enforcement. And so they ritualized this transactional system of exchanging goods and services. And that was called a covenant. And the covenant had um, roughly five parts that happened in all covenants, okay, so these are them. Uh, two people would come who wanted to do some sort of exchange of property, animals, anything else that they were working on at the time, and so they would come and they would bring their animal. And then um, they would cut that animal in half. And they would put one half of the animal over here and one half of the animal over here. And then they would stand in between and then they would talk about what they, how they would uphold the covenant. And then they would walk through the aisle of the animal and they would say something along the lines of, may I become as these animals if I do not uphold my covenant? And that was what, covenant, that was what held them together. It was their word. It was their bond. It was this ritualized covenantal action that was governing um, the exchange of goods and services. And so in Genesis 15, if you look at the language and the actions of what happened, you'll see that that makes sense. God promises Abraham to be his shield and his reward. And Abraham responds when God says that, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? Now, out of context, this seems pretty bold, right? You're pushing back on God a little bit. But when we know that this conversation was not the beginning of God and Abraham's relationship, but that God had promised Abraham and Sarah a child way back in chapter 12 and moving forward, we see that Abraham feels that they had made a covenant that God still hadn't quite upheld God's end of the covenant. So you said I would have a child, I don't have a child, so how can I trust you? That's what Abraham's asking. How can I trust you? So 
God promised Abraham again that he would be the father of many. And what did Abraham do in return? He, out of faith alone, believed God. He believed in what he hadn't seen. He believed that God would be trustworthy. And so, in that, God offers, offers Abraham land. And what does, God, what does Abraham do? He asks God, how can I know that I will gain possession of this land? Again, how can I trust you? And I think God, out of God's benevolence and love for humanity, doesn't say, fine, I'm not going to do it anymore, right? God says, I understand what you need to know that I am trustworthy. What you need is the covenant that you understand. And so God tells Abraham to go get animals, and you'll see what does Abraham do. God doesn't need to tell him. Abraham cuts the animals in half, separates the pieces, and then what happens is that God, as a smoking firepot with a blazing torch, passes through the animals. God covenanted with Abraham. But did you notice what was different than the usual covenant? Usually two people would stand, they would make some agreements, and then they would both walk through. In this covenant, God and Abraham didn't walk through together. God, as a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch, passed through alone. There was no, what will happen if I don't uphold this covenant on Abraham's side or on God's side? God's covenant with Abraham and all of the, the descendants of Abraham and Sarah is unconditional. God commits to upholding both ends of the covenant because God knows that Abraham will slip up, and God, but God sees Abraham's trust and calls that righteousness. God will be faithful no matter what Abraham does because Abraham has shown continual trust in God. And this is Paul's conviction. This is what he's getting to in this Romans passage. It's not our adherence to rules, but our faith in Christ that extends this covenant to all people. This is what makes Abraham the father of many nations. It's not just his biological descendants. It's all of the people who trust that God will do what God promises God will do. Paul states that this righteousness Abraham was credited with was his faith. The righteousness was his faith through God's grace, and that righteousness is what is available to all people who believe in Christ. Our relationship with God isn't about checking off boxes or following rules. It's about a faith that's based on trust in what, that what God has promised, God will deliver. And the faith that Abraham displayed, that faith that Paul implores us to, gives God room to work on God's terms, with God's vision. This reminds me of a book that we're reading in our parents' book, uh, book study. It's called Woven, and it's about creating a faith that will grow with your family and grow with your child. And the first chapter talks about what obedience looks like when it's out of obligation or fear or even out of habit versus obedience that comes from trust. When obedience comes before trust, 
Generally, we create a God who does things for us when we behave in the way that we think God sees as right. If we say our prayers, if we go to church, if we don't curse too much, if we generally act as though our grandmother is always watching, then God will be happy and God will do nice things for us, like get us a really good parking spot at Target. But that's not the God of Abraham who said, I will keep this covenant regardless of if you mess up. And in fact, you will mess up and I will still be there for you. That God calls us into trust first. From which obedience flows because we believe that God wants us to live into the goodness that we were created to live in. And gives us a path to walk toward love and hope. The author says that lifting obedience as the goal teaches kids to be good rather than helping them learn about a God who is good. And you can't trust in a God that you don't know. In our society, in our denomination, in our community, it's easy and sometimes it's encouraged to know a lot of stuff about God, but to not actually open yourself up to being in a relationship with the risen Christ. And so, if you are struggling this morning with your Lenten discipline, it's the second week of Lent, you still have time, I encourage you to let go of what you think you should give up or what you think you should take on. If it hasn't materialized for you yet, let go of that obligation that's making you feel insignificant and instead, it pursue a deeper relationship with Jesus, an intentional relationship with God in a way that makes sense for you, not in a way that you feel like you should be doing. You know, I had this really transcendent experience on Friday as I was listening to our UPUMC Lenten Spotify playlist. Um, I went for a walk uh, because we had had some really stressful news circulating in our neighborhood about school rezoning in Richardson. Um, my, uh, my kids' friends are upset about it. Uh, it's just, it's something that's, being, that's been really hard on our community. And so I got out and I walked. And usually when I walk, I'll listen to a podcast or kind of something upbeat to keep me going with like a high RPM. Uh, but I decided I was going to listen to this podcast and take the time to listen for God and to see how God would show up. And As I was walking and as my head was spinning and my body felt the stress of our community, um, this song on our Lenten playlist called Spiegel im Spiegel came on. It's a piano and a violin. And I think we had heard it once before. And it all of a sudden felt like creation was calling me and coaching me to slow down and to breathe in and breathe out. I was attuned to where God was. And so I recognized it. Instead of being in my head, instead of planning the next thing, I was intentional about opening myself up to who God was. And it was such a magical, transcendent experience where I knew that I was reminded the presence of God would carry us through the valleys. 
and on to new life. If you attended the third day book study last week, you would have seen a community that experienced the power of vulnerability and care. Members sharing personal and moving encounters with God and how they enacted, interacted with God on a real tangible level. That's the presence of God reminding us that God is active in our world and in our community, in the lives of the people that are sitting next to you. That is reminding us that God transforms our pain and our hopelessness into strength and resilience and light. Someone shared with me last week how they reached out unprompted with a word of affirmation for friends after feeling that God just placed her friends on her heart and heard back from them that it was just the right timing for such kind words. When we open ourselves up to a relationship with God, to trusting that God is acting in our lives, it reminds us that we are oftentimes the voice and the heart of God to our friends and our family. We can build a trust in God by finding that God has been, is, and will be with us. We can read it in the Bible. Then when we open ourselves more, we can see that God is around us and God is more than we could experience for ourselves. And then we repeat. It's a practice. We learn in scripture. We live in real time. And in this never-ending pattern of knowing and trusting that ties us to God. So use the pattern this season. In the way that works for you, know, then trust Know, then trust. Know, then trust that the Lord is God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.